Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to a very special episode of the Beyond the Palm podcast. This is episode number 79. Generally speaking, this is the podcast in which Brian and myself will utilize the music of Fish as a means to get you to, as a means of getting you to listen to other bands. These are generally not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. The problem with Fish fans is sometimes they get a bit myopic. They only focus on their favorite band and everything that comes from their favorite band. Our job here is to get you to listen to other bands and other records, and this is what this episode sets out to do. Where are we recording this today? Today, we are on the corner of Greenwood Avenue and Porter Road in Nashville, Tennessee, on the east side of town at Vinyl Tap. At least this is where we're starting. Mm. We are here to record a very, very special episode. An episode that we've been looking forward to recording probably since the inception of this podcast. We are counting down our top albums from the 2010s. Our top albums of this decade. Quite a decade it's been. It's been a heck of a decade. and We kind of wanted to do this in East Nashville just to uh, get us all in the same room, the same area, and this kind of city captures the essence of Beyond the Pond, which is to say that we're doing this at a place that serves both craft beer and sells used vinyl records and is a performance space. So the beer plus the records plus the performance, and it's really nice outside. We figured this is as good a place as any to do this. Shout out to our loving and understanding wives. (laughs) So. What are some of the themes that we're going to be covering in this episode? We're going to be talking about 2010 music in five sentences, live music in the 2010s, all decade honorable mentions, Nashville, and our top 30 albums of the 2010s. And on that note, let's get to the 2010 look back. Straight at the foot of your love I 
this life showed up I was carried to Ohio in a swarm of bees I never married but Ohio don't remember guys so before we get into our list and we have a lot of music to share with you guys this episode this decade has been well dave turned 40 in this decade i turned 30 we both had kids we both went through shit we both saw a lot of music and listened to a lot of music and i think we would both agree a lot of this music had some very very massive impacts on us as a result of where we were at in life And so we wanted to, before we jump into the episode, kind of summarize this last decade into five sentences. Dave, if you were to summarize this decade into five sentences, what would would the 2010s sound like to you? 2010s would sound like to me so much information, although that was actually a reference to... uh, 1993 era Duran Duran song information in the sense that this is when the streaming revolution really came into play you've got millions of records millions of records at your fingertips so many things to listen to so many things to decide sometimes you got to really wait through the muck I would also say that the indie kids are starting to embrace the jam while not sounding like jam bands I'd say the race is on to find the next generation of like arena rockers You've got a band like Wolfpack, who I kind of have mixed opinions on. They just kind of sold out Madison Square Garden. You've got, like, Vampire Weekend starting to play arenas. Like, promoters are trying to see who can fill up these big sheds now. I would say that people still make records. Even with the streaming revolution, the album is still very important. I don't think it's ever going to go away, and I'm kind of happy to say that. I would kick off my five sentences to describe the decade in a similar sense. The death of the album never came, as is proof by how great of a year 2019 is in terms of full albums, and there are a number of 2019 releases that made our overall lists, if not our top tens. Uh, The easiest time in the history of the world to find new music, which I think would go in a similar sense to where you're at in terms of there's almost too much new music to find. The digital revolution meets organic songwriting. Indie Jam leaps forward. Arguments could be made about where Indie Jam began, when it began. You cannot argue that the last, especially five years, have been phenomenal for the genre. And finally, everything is 50 years old now. How many 50-year anniversaries do we have throughout this decade? of records that our parents absolutely loved, events our parents absolutely loved. Yes, yes. Seems like everything turned 50 years old this decade. Everything did turn 50 years old. This was like every retrospective on the White Album, Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road, all your favorite Neil Young records. Woodstock. Mm-hmm. So, being that this is, at its heart of it, a fish podcast, 
we did not want to move away from the heart of this of the podcast in and of itself. This is the first decade since the 90s, the only decade other than the 90s to feature 10 years of Fishers, which is kind of amazing when you consider how long the band has been around. But we wanted to use this as an opportunity to count down what we believe are the five best Fishers of the decade. Each of us made our list. I don't think we have uh, any shows that are on both of, uh, both lists, which is a good thing. That's on purpose. That's on purpose. Um, but we want to go through this here really quick, just say a brief sentence or two about uh, each of these shows, because the thing that's really amazing about this is there's 10 shows on here, and I could have probably made a list with 10 other shows. There are so many great shows that have happened over the last decade. But Dave, what do you believe are the five best fish shows that happened in the 2010s? Okay, I'm going to give an honorable mention to my favorite third quarter of the 2010. Not the best show, top to bottom. Third quarter of August 19, 2012. Cross-eyed, light, Sally, cross-eyed. Maybe my favorite 45 minutes of fish ever. That third quarter doesn't ever quit. The show itself, top to bottom, aside from that, is not bad, but not that spectacular, but holy fucking shit. So, other than that, my top five fish shows of the 2010, I have... Reading, Pennsylvania, Santander Arena, October 29, 2013. Of course, Almond Z, down at the Z's that makes you want to run through a wall. I've got a show that's from summer 15, where everything was good, but my favorite show from that tour is uh, August 7th of 2015. Maybe my favorite Chalk This Torture ever, despite only being 15 minutes. Las Vegas. October 28, 2016, best golden age the band has ever played. July 25th, 2017, jam-filled night. I was there. And I've got Madison Square Garden, December 29th, 2018. We've had a lot of talk about whether that was better than 30th. But, my God, the tweezer from that show, the tweezer from that show fills it with so much joy that I had to include it in uh, that top five. So I don't have any shows from your top five, and I can't dispute any of yours at the same time. It's pretty mm. amazing. I have uh, the first night of the Gorge in 2009, August 7th. Amazing Sneak and Sally jam that uh, still holds up. Incredible light jam. And the gin, hood, slave trifecta to close out the show is just unbelievable. Dicks, 2012, fuck your face. 831, 2012. I don't know if there's anything more I could say about it. If you haven't heard it and you've listened to this podcast, it's on par with never hearing Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It's on par with never listening to the war on drugs. It's on par with probably never drinking an IPA or watching a baseball game and listening to this podcast. I don't mm. know what's going on. I don't know. Yeah, if you've never heard 831.12, then I don't understand why you're listening to this podcast. I mean, we invite you as a listener. Yeah. But we also Welcome. invite you to listen to the Fuck Your Face show. <laughs> it will fuck your face. Next, I got Randall's, July 13th, 2014. Kind of a predictable show in this spot, but how could I deny it? Sand opener, really good Reba, uh, really beautiful, well-placed winter queen. Second set, third quarter, though. Chalk dust, light, tweezer. Come on. Come on. And we are talking about quarters, and that's okay. (laughs) Um... Jumping ahead to summer 2015, Atlanta night one, 731.15. 15. 
there were probably six shows I could put on here from summer 2015. My favorite tour of the whole decade for Fish. Um, but uh, absolutely amazing, um, amazing show. Uh, and then finally, uh, MSG, December 30th, 2018. My favorite show of 3.0. And uh, I think just an amazing uh insight into what the band has done over the last 10 years um, and I'm realizing that I broke a rule by including a 2009 show as we speak so I'm going to pull an audible here really quickly and throw a shout out out to Powder Night 72617 uh, to round out my actual top 5 <laughs> yeah that's nice we had a good yin and yang here I had 725 and you had 726 I had 1229 and you had 1230. I was at all four of those shows. They're all fantastic. All really good stuff. I was at none of them. Hmm. Well, you I know. have nothing to say. I mean, living in New York City helps, but you live in the mountains of Denver where the air is cleaner and there's no humidity. You can go to Red Rocks and exercise. So this is true. It all balances out. Lots of coulds. What's that? <laughs> I said lots of coulds. Yeah. <laughs> so, staying on the topic of live music, obviously we're both huge Fish fans and we love what they have done over the last decade. Uh, we wanted to talk, I originally had this section as a top five, but it has expanded into a top seven because I couldn't just pick five. Uh, we both see a lot of live music, uh, we both see a lot of Fish, but also a lot of other music. So we wanted to go through our top seven concerts that we've seen in the 2010s. Dave, do you want to kick it off? Yes. In November of 2010, I saw Sufjan Stevens at the Beacon Theater touring behind his Age of Odds album. An album that I don't like very much, but the live show made me reconsider everything I ever thought about that album. Because he essentially played that album almost from front to back with choreography. So he basically played the Age of Odds album front to back with choreography. And there was a balloon drop, and then he played Chicago. I think the encore was John Wayne Gacy Jr. and Caster Pulaski Day. I was crying after that show. I was so incredibly moved by that show and the performance and the artistry that I thought Sufjan is a genius. I was, like, literally shaking and crying. That's never happened to any show I have ever been to. So that's definitely up there. I have, from 2011, seen Robin at Radio City Music Hall. Maybe my wife's favorite concert ever. That was just a phenomenal fucking dance party throwdown. Robin will serve us later in this podcast. I went to Pitchfork Fest in 2013. I saw Swans, Savages, Low, Bell and Sebastian. It was gorgeous weather. Excellent bands. Pitchfork was very well put together. That was kind of the summer before we had our first child. So that was kind of like a very innocent time. Slater Kinney, New York City, February 2015, Terminal 5. That was on their reunion tour of sorts. They had just put out a fantastic album in 2015, their first in nine years. That show was a big reminder of what everybody was missing. Fish, Columbia, Maryland, August 2015. Probably the single most fun time I've had at a Fish show. Shout out to Friend of the Pond, P.J. Rudolph, for uh, hanging out with me at that gig. We both got through alive. Sturgill Simpson, New York City, September 2015. That show had jams that practically went type two. And then, and then for my last, I'm gonna cheat a bit because I saw this band in this venue at December 2016, 2017, 2018, but the hold steady have been doing this thing at the Brooklyn Bowl called Massive Nights. They do these like three and four night runs at Brooklyn Bowl. 
and that has like totally rekindled my love for a band that I loved in the OOs, the Hold Steady. These are just fucking throwdown shows. I've got a friend who I met at my daughter's daycare who's British. His best friend flies in from London just to go to these shows. He says like, mate, it's kind of like when you go see fish, this is like our fish. So, Hold Steady, Massive Nights. That's what I got. So I got started out back in February 2011. I just moved to Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'd gotten obsessed about a year and a half earlier with Yola Tango. And they came to town on their Wheel of Fortune tour, where they famously did an entire skit on the entire Seinfeld Chinese restaurant episode. Mm. Much too many fans chagrins. Uh, in set one, they played the sounds of the sounds of science. Which is one of the best live things I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, it's an ambient uh, soundtrack that they recorded for a Japanese film. Uh, I believe it's about Jacques Cousteau. Um, it's no, under, it's not underwater ja- not Jacques- fil- filmography, right? Yeah, not Jacques Cousteau. It's a different French name, but not Jacques Cousteau. I can see why you think it would be Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the soundtrack is amazing. Um, I took my wife. She was not as into it as I was, uh, but it was an incredible show. And then they came out and played a very standard, which means excellent uh, Yola Tango second set that uh, caught a bunch of songs I'd been wanting to hear since I first got into the band. Uh, I talked about this in the last segment, but uh, Fish, the Fuck Your Face show from August 31st, 2012 at Commerce City, Colorado. I'd just gotten married a week earlier. Uh, best jamming I'd ever seen from Fish at that point. Best show I'd ever seen and still have ever seen from Fish. Uh, fast forward, September 2014, my brother scored tickets to the War on Drugs private show at the Chicago Music Exchange prior to their headlining set at the Hangout, no, not the Hangout Festival, the Hideout Festival. Mm. Uh, it was only like six songs, but we got to meet Adam Grandshield before the show. They opened up with Eyes to the Wind, and as he stepped to the mic, he said, this one's for Uncle Jim, which was in reference to my dad. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Uh, played Burning, played uh, pretty much like the majority of Lost in the Dream, which was great, and then played uh, Best Night, which was the song that originally got me into the war on drugs. My brother sent me that song in uh, the fall of 2011. So, very special show. I'd just gotten back from Asia at that time, and I was there with my brother and my dad. It was about six months after my uncle had passed, who was super into the war on drugs. So, it was very much of a emotive uh, show, but a really, really cool experience. It was like a wall of guitars behind Adam as they played. Um, Fish, Magnaball. I, I said in the last segment I could have pretty much featured any show from 2015. This is my cheating, like you, you did with the Hold Steady three nights. Yep. There's really nothing that I could say about any night being better than the other. There were better nights than other nights, but the whole run as a, as a whole uh, unit was an incredible experience. The late night set. Uh, Tweezer Caspian. Tweezer Caspian. We covered in episode 12. Uh, my wife's birthday was August 21st. I did a shout out uh, to. Trey's daughter, whose birthday was of the same day, so we got the whole fish crowd to sing happy birthday, and uh, people were turning around singing it to my wife. It was very cool. Uh, His School, The Messenger, the 930 Club, in December 2017. I went to this show with uh, friends of the pod, uh, Ryan Smith, RJB, and Jonathan Hart. We sat front row. Uh, It was one of the most emotionally powerful concerts I've ever seen in my entire life. 
And uh, his school, the messenger man. What a live, what a live show! I'm gonna go see him here. I will have seen him in Denver as this episode uh, drops, and uh, I just can't wait. He's so, so, so good live. Or MC Taylor with his band, his school, the messenger. I should say. Uh, two 2019 shows to finish this out. Low in March of 2019, I saw them in uh, at the at Globe Hall here in Denver, uh, one of my favorite venues. Uh, they played following the Double Negative Tour. Uh, one of my favorite records that's going to pop up later in this episode of the decade. Unbelievable concert, quietest crowd I've ever seen, and some of the most raw, incredible jamming I've seen on stage outside of Fish. And then finally, just last month, I saw Tim Showalter with Strand of Oaks at Globe Hall as well. Uh, they opened up their... Uh, their opening set is supposed to be their, their guitarist, their lead guitarist band. And he was a bit under the weather. They think it was either uh, the travel that they'd been on or the altitude. So Tim came out wearing sunglasses with the rest of the band and said, Welcome. This is the debut performance of the Mile High Club. And we're just going to jam. And they played <laughs> like a crazy horse style jam for 30 minutes before coming out and playing his traditional set list of most of a racer land most a heel and a bit off of hard love and uh man man that was just such a killer set and such a killer show so those are my seven just uh soup to nuts because we care about accuracy here it was not jacques Cousteau with the filmmaker for sounds of the sounds of science was jean panlevé at least that's how it looks like it's pronounced so he was the one with the great underwater films that Yola Tango soundtrack. So now, I guess before we get to the, the list, we're going to do some honorable mentions. Some brief honorable mentions that I had that would not make the top 30, but this is like bubbling under, say, 40 to 30. I've got Alabama Shakes, Sound and Color, such a good sounding record. Brittany Howard, front woman, just put out an amazing solo record that you absolutely have to check out. Got Steve Gunn, Eyes on the Lines. He's going to uh, surface somewhere in the top 30, do not worry. Phosphorescent, Muchacho. I think uh, he actually has relocated to Nashville. At the time, he was uh, writing his record in Greenpoint, Broken, but now he's down here. Daft Punk, Random Access Memories. That album, Nothing Screams 2013, quite like that Daft Punk record. Future Islands singles. Robin waiting on you. All I gotta say about that. Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City. Killer Mike, RAP Music. And let me see. Oh, last one I've got that comes to mind. Underworld, Barbara Barbara, We Face a Shining Future. Fantastic record for one of my favorite bands. Put together one of the most interesting relevant albums in the 2010s. Didn't quite make the top 30. It's probably my 31, I would say. So I've got similar uh, to Dave here. Uh, I, I kind of went through, so I've made a top 200 list. I spent seven weeks here in August and September going through pretty much all potential records for, uh, for this list. Uh, and I made... 31 through 200 list that I'm going to drop on Twitter at some point here after this episode comes out. But these are kind of picked through that various points um, just because I loved a lot of music and I wanted to showcase some records that I kind of wish could be in my top 30, but for various reasons are not. So kicking things off, uh, this is a 
This is a record very high on my list uh, from 2018, Chris Forsyth, All Time Present, one of my favorite guitar records of the entire decade. The last track on this record, Techno Top, is one of the best indie jam songs of all time. Techno Top is 2019. Having yes. seen Chris play that with both the Solar Motel band and Garcia Peoples, that's just... Uh, the opener of that album, Tomorrow Might As Well Be Today, is just an amazing, bright, sunny, warm guitar song. Uh, LCD Sound System, American Dream, came out in 2017. I expected nothing from this album. And I got so much. It's a good record. It's really good. Uh, Real Estate Atlas. I don't think that there is a better Sunday morning dad indie jam record that came out other than Real Estate Atlas. That nearly made my top 30. Uh, I love that record so much. I listen to it all the time. It's an oversight on mine. That should have been in my honorable mentions. It's all good. It's in mine. Yeah, exactly. So now it can be in yours too. Okay. Uh, Wand, Laughing Matter from 2019. Really incredible record. Will probably be in my top five at the end of year's end. Uh, I think you sent me that, and I listened to it like God. three or four times in a row one day. Just absolutely in love with it. I like albums where the guitars sound like they're like rocket ships. <laughs> and that one doesn't. Uh, Flying Lotus until the quiet comes. We're here in Nashville visiting uh, our, fr- our friend and chef Brian Lee Weaver. Uh, we have an episode coming out with him here in a couple weeks, and um, man. He passed me that record and uh, just completely changed the way I hear music in a lot of ways. Panda Bear Tomboy from 2011. This was a huge grower for me. I love Person Pitch. If you ask me to rank my favorite albums of the 2000s, it will probably be in my top five. Uh, this one, I don't know, it's much more quiet, much more one note, much more subtle, but uh, I just kept coming back to it. Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives. Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives. Wanted to give a shout out here. Uh, Janet Weiss's uh, partner, Drew Grow. Uh, was one of the first musicians and bands I discovered when I was in Portland, and this was a record that completely reminds me of rainy January, February evenings at bars drinking porters while listening to this record. Amazing album. If you have not heard it, it's on Spotify. Check it out. Uh, wrapping up, Wilco Schmilko. Wilco just put out a phenomenal record here yesterday as of recording. Schmilko was a reintroduction for me of how much I love that band. The next unfold from 2017 kind of changed how I heard music. First time I really heard like indie jam in a true way. And then finally, Own Tricks Point Never, R Plus 7 from 2013. Uh, I think every one of his records made my top 200 from this decade. Uh, I believe there's something in my top 30. Oh, if not, it's uh, it's an oversight from me, but uh, this record is just really bizarre really cool collection of his songs from that era as he was transitioning um, into slightly more atmospheric sounds that uh, I've greatly come to love so all those records should definitely be heard by you as well as the ones on Dave's list Uh, there's a reason why we wanted to mention our honorable mentions because there has been so much good music that's come out this decade some of it just you know 30 is not a lot no, it's really not a lot when you get down to it. We were making our list. I think we were both like, "Shit, can we put this in here?" But uh, you know, we just can't put everything in there. We, I think we cheated at one point. There may be like a one mid two thousand nine that didn't catch fire in the public consciousness until twenty ten on each of ours. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it.
reminisce here about some of our favorite memories and some of our biggest takeaways of the decade guys we're gonna jump into our list so when we we've been talking about this episode honestly since the inception of the podcast trying to figure out what do we do do we do a top 10 do we do a top 20 we settled on 30 because we were like it's a lot of records but it also kind of forces us into a really uh condensed list and it forces us to look at a lot of really great albums with kind of a critical eye to say what did this album really mean to me so we're going to spend the next however much time going through our top 30 Uh, we want to recommend as many of these to you guys as possible we're going to put a spotify playlist together of our favorite records so we're going to start with 30 through 11 now kind of not at hyper speed but definitely go through this uh, with conscience of your guys' time and our time. But we are sitting out here on a beautiful afternoon at Vinyl Tap in East Nashville. And uh, things are good. Mm. We're drinking some Mexican lager. So there's no reason to rush. So bear with us. There will be some music played here. But without further ado, we're going to take these in chunks of five. Dave, do you want to go through your 30 through 26? I absolutely do. I have for my number 30... Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever, Hope Downs from 2018. This is a kind of breezy, song-oriented kind of college rock album that, you know, bands almost seem unwilling to make these days. Not surprised to me that it's from Melbourne, Australia. I mean, this is kind of one of the closest things you can get to R.E.M.'s Murmur, that it's kind of jangly, catchy, instantly recognizable. Done in under 40 minutes, it feels like a cool, crisp breeze on a fall day really good live as well if you're going to listen to one song at that album pick the song Mainland so I'm going to jump to number 29 that would be a guy by the name of Luke Elliott album called Dress for the Occasion this is from 2017 this is a guy who's a crooner he looks classy, he wears a suit he makes cigarette smoking look cool Sits at the piano, he's got an expressive baritone. You know, think like Nick Cave, Leonard Cohen, uh, Stuart Staples from Tindersticks. The kind of like, you know, male singer-songwriters that don't really fly in the States anymore, but they kind of eat up in Europe, which is why he's actually bigger in Scandinavia, much bigger in Scandinavia than he is here. This is a luxurious record produced by uh, John Agnello. It's got buzzing strings, pounded piano, orchestral flourishes, it's a gorgeous album. I might not have heard about him were it not for uh, Jim DeRogatis on the Excellent Sound Opinions podcast. So thank you very much, Jim. Excellent recommendation on your guys' end. But yeah, Luke Elliott, check him out. Number 28, I have album by a band called Fucked Up. David Comes to Life came out in 2011. This is like stadium-ready hardcore. 
It's kind of what Foo Fighters would sound like with additional members and like a barking, shouting, hardcore frontman in one Damien Abraham. I've like seen them live and they kind of stand in one semicircle, which allows the front man to go crazy, make funny jokes about his testicles in between songs. He himself has an excellent podcast called Turned Out of Punk, where he talks about how people got into punk music. Fucked Up is kind of like the E Street Band in terms of like loud, arena ready, proggy hardcore, and David comes to life in 2011 as their opus. Number 27, I think the only band that appears twice in my top 30. That's the National. Trouble Will Find Me from 2013. You know, easily one of my favorite bands of the past two decades. I'll have more to say about them later, but suffice to say, of the two albums I'll talk about, this is the one that has the songs that sound best live. It's a little stripped down for this band. Has the most energy, the songs that translate on stage. Also has This Is The Last Time, probably my favorite National song to date. Number 26... Lydia Loveless, Somewhere Else, in 2014. The opening one-two punch on this album, Really Want to See You in Wine Lips, constitute the best opening of any album I've got on my list. It just kicks the fucking door down and follow up with a perfect pop song. I've expressed, no pun intended, love for Lydia Loveless on this podcast before. She just writes razor-sharp rock songs, killer twang, unafraid to get a little R-rated from time to time, very honest. You know, it's just... An excellent rock and roll album without a lot of filler. Not much else to say. She's also a great podcaster talking about Lifetime movies. She's got a sardonic wit. I think she's got a record coming out in 2020 I am looking forward to. Your eyes, they look so very troubled. The sweat on your brow is a heavy weights We've been talking about train robbers Vagabonds and spinning plates Alright, so my number 30 is a band that appears on my uh, top list here once again Yola Tango, There's a Riot Going On Absolutely phenomenal record from a band 35 years into their career Huge deep dive into ambient music midway through the record. Uh, I loved this last year. I think it was my number five record last year and uh, one of my favorite go-to records uh, all, all, all throughout the decade. You Are Here. What a song. 29, Juliana Barwick, The Magic Place. If you took Brian Eno's music for airports and combined it with a really beautiful soprano type vocal styling it's what you get which you kind of get on the back half of music for airports and this is just that throughout an entire record uh, no record reminds me of spring 2011 in portland quite like this it just sounds like the smell of petrichor sounds like biking through leafy beautiful liberal suburbia sounds like the rain just sounds like everything I was feeling at the time and every play, everywhere I was at the time. I love this record. It's gorgeous. Uh, 28, Dave mentioned this in his honorable mentions, Phosphorescent Muchacho. This came out, uh, I remember it exactly. I got to Korea on uh, March 1st, 2013. Woke up on Saturday, March 2nd. Threw open my computer. Jumped on Facebook, as one would do in 2013 before it became a rotting cesspool. And someone said... 
You have to hear this song. This is the spring to come. And it was song for Zulu, and I threw it on, and I said, holy shit, how have I not listened to this band? And I downloaded Muchacho, because I didn't have streaming services at the time. I just downloaded music still. What a concept, huh? And uh, I remember listening to the record front to back, like the first week I was living in Korea. It ended up as my ninth, I think my ninth favorite record of 2013, and it's still one of my favorite records of the overall decade. Uh, 27, Cite, Dream Get Together. Hmm. This is an interesting selection for me because uh, I, I received Cite's, um, I'm blanking on their record from 2007, uh, Little Kingdom, there it is, uh, in the fall of 2009, and it was a huge groundbreaking record for me. I got that. Uh, Woods, Songs of Shame, as well as uh, Yola Tango's and then Nothing Turns Itself Inside Out. And those three records really changed the way I listened to music in that fall. And then this came out in January of 2010. I didn't totally love it. And it took me a while, and I was listening to it recently, and I realized as I was listening to it uh, over the summer that it just, like, predicted so much of where my musical interest would go. So my number 26 record is almost kind of a byproduct in some ways of my love for that Cite album, Riley Walker, Deathman Glance. It's kind of a record that I don't think I would have loved it without falling for these like guitar psych jam records that I was listening to kind of subconsciously in the early part of the decade. This came out in mid-2018. It was a really revelatory record for me with regards to Riley. I had liked... Um, uh, Golden Sings That Have Been Sung, I believe, his 2016 album. Yeah. Half uh, Half Me. Yes, Half Me is great. Um, there's a 38-minute Sullen Mind tacked onto it on Spotify that's excellent, recorded at, uh, I think, the Sirius XM Studios. Um, Deaf Man Glance, though, is just such... It's a peak for him. It's a peak from a songwriting standpoint. A lot of these songs have now shown up in his live set list and feature phenomenal jamming and are some of his best performances uh, that we hear to date. Uh, for For listeners of this pod who are familiar with archive.org, the show from September 29th, 2018 from Fort Collins, Riley Walker's show, features a number of songs from this record, all jammed 15 minutes plus. It's all, all phenomenal stuff. So Riley Walker, Death Man Glance, one of my favorite records of the last decade, comes in at number 26 to me.
Let's continue, though, Dave. What is number 25 for you? Number 25 is Drive-By Truckers American Band. This is a band that spent a lot of the 2010s kind of treading water a little bit. They had a series of decent to good albums that found them getting a tad comfortable with their sound. The Big To-Do, Go-Go Boots, English Oceans, all fine, a little unexciting. American Band changes that because that record is a call to arms. Remember, the first time I heard the song Surrender Under Protest, at a trucker show in early 2016, it sounded really urgent. I mean, there's a Patterson Hood song on this record about a school shooting in his adopted home of Oregon. There's a song about Mike Brown, the unrest in Ferguson. Like the song Surrender Under Protest is about a campaign to remove the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House. I mean, the political climate in 2015 kind of seemingly re-energized the band, resulting in their sharpest tunes and sharpest political commentary since the mid-2000s. And let's just say that American Band was the only album I was able to listen to after Election Day in 2016. I mean, this is a band that's been around for almost two decades. I think they're as important and relevant as ever. Number 24, Vampire Weekend, Modern Vampires of the City from 2013. This is the third album, Leap. I mean, previously, I thought Vampire Weekend was a group of, you know, very pleasant, nice college dudes making kind of like faux pas Simon world music with plenty of good songs, neat production tricks. Not much to say that there aren't like a novelty who's going to burn out at some point. But Modern Vampires is the record where you say, oh shit, I got to start taking this band seriously. I mean, I still think... It's arguably their best top-to-bottom record, the best songs, best production, lots of clever sides, lots of Easter eggs, and it also has Hannah Hunt, which is my favorite Vampire Weekend song. Did not name my daughter Hannah after Hannah Hunt, but at the same time I tell her, this song is your name, and she flips out. So More on this record later. Yes. Number 23, this one's kind of for me, Hot Chip In Our Heads. I think this is one of the most underrated bands of the 2000s, 2010s, which is so consistently good at making thought-provoking dance music, catchy, lots of songs about love. We just take them for granted. And I think this is my favorite Hot Chip album, especially Side B. It's got songs like Let Me Be Him, which is an unbelievable song. How Do You Do, second song in this album. It's just, uh, I tell people about this record, like, Hot Chip, isn't that like Boy From School? I'm like, yes, but you got to hear this record as well. Number 22, this is an album I know Brian's going to feature later. Spoiler alert, Deer Hunter, Halcyon Digest. I'd say Revival, Desire Lines, and Helicopters are three of my favorite songs from the past 10 years. Most of our Beyond the Pond outtakes are just me and Brian moaning over how much we love Desire Lines. (laughs) Uh, This is Deer Hunter's peak record for me. I mean, it kind of matches the rangy shoegaze pop of the early records. With the strongest songwriting, it's, you know, established them as a legit act to keep track of my 21. I've got Kurt Vile, Smoke Ring from My Halo. To me, this is the ultimate, like, staring out the Greyhound bus going nowhere album. I mean, I kind of always appreciated Kurt Vile in the past. This is the first of his albums, top to bottom, I loved. Also very well produced by John Agnello, who also produced... Uh, the album I spoke about earlier, of course, being from Luke Elliott. This is a road trip album, and it kind of established Kurt Vile as sort of like a stoner philosopher type. Um, it's the one I go back to most.
Say somewhat regretfully, uh, so waking on a pretty days is my Kurt Vile record, where yours is smoking for my t- my halo. Yeah, smoking for my halo. Um, that just missed my top thirty, and uh, that I did not include it on my honorable mentions for whatever reason. But it is getting a shout out here. It's a jerk. It is. It is. I love that record. Uh, that and bottle it in are my two favorites of his from the decade. But man, waking on a pretty days, what could have been, you know. There are probably 50 albums that should be here that yeah. aren't. It's, it's so tough to make these lists. So, my number 25, Radiohead and Moonshape Pool. It's kind of in the spirit of Yola Tango, just like, how the hell is this band making such great music this deep into their career? Uh, for me, uh, I became a Radiohead fan with OK Computer, worked backwards through the, through the bends and Pablo Honey, but it was really Kid A and Amnesiac that made me a diehard Radiohead fan. Uh, had two different diversions with the band, though. Uh, Hail to the Thief and The King of Limbs did not hit me initially. Um, both of those records became two of my favorites as a result of A Moonshape Pool. A Moonshape Pool really dove me back into the band. Came out at a very kind of perfect time, early spring Radiohead record. Not really the time that you think of Radiohead as a band for you. They're kind of like a wintry band to me, but... Uh, really fit this cold and wet and rainy spring 2016 that we had in Annapolis. I had a nine-month-old at the time. It was a very kind of sleepy and slightly sad record. Um, In addition to that, uh, the stuff that Tom wrote about in terms of his longtime partner going through very serious illness uh, really hit me hard about four or five months later when my wife started going through a serious illness. Uh, So just an unbelievable record, amazing comeback for this band that uh, really established them once again as probably one of the best music-making projects we have. Uh, 24, yet another return for a big band, uh, but in a different way. Slow Dive, self-titled Slow Dive. This was one of the first new album recommendations that we made uh, in April of 2016 or 2017. Dave made this, and uh, Dave is credited with really making me appreciate shoegaze music Mm. and it all kind of started for me with this record and i still go back uh the 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 opening three or four tracks of this album are so strong and i saw this band live in november of 2017 all of these songs were played essentially pretty much the whole new album and everything sounded fantastic live it was really well represented really showcased that how this band had been broken up for about 20 years they were still capable of making phenomenal music in a live setting yeah this one just missed honorable mentions it probably honorable mentions it should have been there it's a uh, slow dive so tells an amazing record number 23 for me was my number one album of last year jeff the brotherhood magic songs uh this was a big I don't know if I would classify this record as indie jam, but this is what, like, this coupled with Jesse Jarno's Alternate Roots podcast last September uh, really just blew my mind open to what guitar-led, psych-driven bands could do on record and live. Uh, I still love this record. I still throw it on all the time, and uh, just a very important record for me at the time. So uh, this record reminds me a ton of late-night 
vape pen induced walks with my dog through <laughs> the neighborhoods of Denver. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the sticker on the next record. <laughs> that is that is about you as you like da- vape pen induced <laughs> late night walks with your dog in Denver. We got a band for you. <laughs> that is about as dad rocking as it gets, huh? Number twenty two for me is a reissue. Bob Dylan, the bootleg series, volume ten, another self portrait. This came out in the fall of two thousand and thirteen. This took an obsession I had already had established over a decade with Bob Dylan. And broke it back open in a very unique way, a very different way. I suddenly became uh, in, entrenched with, and continued to this day, the music that he made between 1967 and 1974. Basically, right after he crashed his motorcycle and disappeared in Woodstock, New York. Started playing music with the band again in, at Big Pink. Recorded the basement tapes. Started playing with uh, Johnny Cash. And this like countryside, domestic side of Bob Dylan came out. And this record is filled with songs that none of them would ever appear really on his greatest hits, but are so thoughtful, so simple, so inward looking, so domestic that um, it's really resonated with me over the last couple of years, especially since I had a kid of my own. And finally, number one, Twin Sister Moon, then Fell of the Ashes. This record was posted on a thread of new music from a user on Fantasy Tour named Logic Error. I used to just crave these threads that would go up. He would post like 25, 30 new new albums on Fantasy Tour during 2009, 2010. If you were on that website during that time and you avoided the cesspool that the website was at most times, but still used it for new album recommendations. This was the kind of record for you, and Logic Era was the kind of user for you. He was amazing in terms of the music he shared, and I was so lucky to get so many new records from him. This was one of them. Totally opened my eyes to what was possible within uh, psych, noise, jam, rock, but also like very beautiful lo-fi songs like Trailer. That's one of my favorite songs that has ever been made. Alberta, let your hair hang low Alberta, let your hair hang low I'll give you more gold And your apron strings can hold If you'll only let your hair Let's transition here into our top 20s. Dave, what are your 20 through 15? Number 20, I have Lucero, live in Atlanta in 2015. Double album. These guys are road dogs. Always on tour. A live album is really the best way to experience the rapturous punk rock and soul that is a Lucero show. I mean, this band kind of takes, like, Springsteen era, like the river, or I should say, like the, yeah, exactly, like Bruce, kind of like river era, dunks it in a rock glass full of Jack Daniels, plus wanton cigarette smoking, and lots of tattoos, incredibly tattooed band, I mean, their singer, Ben Nichols, doesn't so much sing as he kind of barks, but man, do he and his band bring the energy hard, I mean, this is kind of like... Lucero's like the rough-and-tumble bar band of your dreams. It seems like they spend their lives in a tour bus, going from venue to venue. 
This album is just a party from top to bottom. It showcases the band in their best element with all their best songs. It was pretty much my intro to the band. And it's one of those records I can put on the car, and my wife is like, all these guys singing about is women and whiskey, and it's still pretty good. Like, I know. <laughs> That's, they've got a niche, they play to it, and it's just like a raucous fucking party. So, number 19, I have another record that if you told me 10 years ago we'd talk about this album, 20, uh, right now I'd be surprised. Number 19, New Order, Music Complete, which came out in 2015. Yeah, I mean, I've got an album from an 80s synth-pop band here. <laughs> it's new fucking order. I mean, they're still capable of making awesome records, especially when these guys embrace, like, Euro house pianos, like they do here. They focus on electronics, away from guitars. They kind of embrace their cheese. They, like, embrace being new order, and somehow they end up with their best album since Technique in 1989. I, like, did not expect to enjoy this album nearly as much as I did. Number 18, Slater Kinney, No Cities to Love from 2015. Total fucking comeback album. They were away for nine years. They wanted to make sure the comeback was good. They didn't fuck this up. They got John Goodmanson. He produced all their classic records. He understands the things that make Slater Kinney good. Places Janet Weiss way up in the mix like she ought to be. It's a heck of a comeback album. It's one of their best albums, period. When I saw them live that year, people were actually psyched to hear the new songs. I know Slater Kinney put out a record in 2019. I can give you my opinions on it later, but I don't like it quite as much as No Cities to Love. My number 17, Jason Isbell, Southeastern, from 2013. This is his full-on sobriety album I mean he's looking right into your soul on the cover of the record he's deadly serious this is a deadly serious record it sounds gorgeous he's got Dave Cobb perfect bare bones production it's very heavy going over the course of 12 tracks but I mean the lyrics are incredible the songs are perfect they're clear eyed to the point Elephant is a devastating like cancer song I mean, this is a career-defining album. It kind of reinvigorated both Jason Isbell and his fan base. It would be the template for his albums going forward. I mean, if you know this man, this is probably the album that got you into Jason Isbell. I mean, he had some fantastic stuff with the Drive-By Truckers. His pre-sobriety solo records with the Truckers are okay. This is, uh, this is the career statement. Number 16, Tune Yards, Who Killed from 2011. Meryl Garbus. The first time I heard the song Business off this album, I thought, the fuck is this? This sounds like a demented cousin of, like, Remain in Light or Talking Heads. This is a funhouse mirror of a record. It's funky. It's finger-snapping. It's got bass line, grooving dance party, kind of magnified by her bonkers live shows in which she does loops. Her, like, backing musicians dress up in costumes. It's kind of like a Pee-wee's Playhouse meets, like, Broadway. I think it's her best record. She's put out two since, both of which kind of slightly decrease in quality. Um, and her devotion to wokeness at all costs kind of might be getting in the way of the songs. But at least this album is a technicolor throwdown. She said, and you're better than your past. Winked at me and drained her glass. Cross-legged on a bar stool like nobody sits anymore. She said, and you're taking me home, but I 
knew she planned to sleep alone I'd carry her to bed and sweep up the hair from her floor If I'd fucked her before she got sick I'd never hear the end of it She don't have the spirit for that now Alright, my number 20 record from one of our favorite musicians who showed up on my favorite live shows of the decade his golden messenger thank you (laughs) 2016's heart like a levy this is one of my favorite records of the whole decade this came out at a very very important time my wife was battling cancer my son was just a year old i felt this like grip of love for these people so close to my life also such incredible vulnerability for the things that could happen in the world and this record came along at a time that i absolutely needed to it needed it the chorus from biloxi it's hard lord lord it's hard you write those lyrics down sounds kind of ridiculous and then you hear mc taylor sing it and it just warms your soul in the most important and needing meaningful way uh you know i wasn't alone you know i wasn't lonely i just like being alone just blows me away the actual song heart like a levy is uh one of my favorite songs of the entire decade so incredible stuff from mc taylor keep doing what you're doing man unbelievable work uh number 19 Yet another that showed up in my top album, or my top live shows of the decade. Tim Showalter's Strand of Oaks, You Gotta Heal. This record was passed to me by our close friend, Brian Weaver, who we are here hanging out with. We're going to go eat at the Butcher and the Bee here shortly. We ate breakfast. I ate lunch, basically, at the Red-Headed Stranger as well. We had, what, nine tacos between us and a green chili cheeseburger. Yeah, nine tacos plus coffee plus a green chili cheeseburger. And we're going back tomorrow. Oh yeah, no, it's uh, it's an incredible achievement. Brian's food is only matched by his knowledge of and love for music. And he passed me this record in the winter of 2014. And his warmth and hospitality. This is true as well. Such a nice guy. Such a good dude. If you have not eaten his food, please, please do so. Um... 2014, I just moved to Annapolis. I just got my first, like, real job. I was wearing, like, tucked-in shirts and nice shoes to work every day. It was a really weird feeling. I just got back from Asia, and uh, I needed some soul in my life. And he said, put this on. Tell me what you think after Goshen 97 ends. One of the best album openers of the decade. Uh, The song Shut In, one of my favorite songs of the entire decade. That really seemed to summarize where I felt at that point in my life. J.M., is a shout-out to Jason Molina, one of our favorite musicians, who sadly passed at the age of 39 in 2013. Yeah, and uh, that was his his ode to him. Uh, amazing record. I cannot stop listening to it. 18, William Tyler, Modern Country. This came out in 2016. Man, this is just such a perfect guitar-led Americana record. It's a gorgeous record. It's gorgeous, right? Driving on the highway at 5 in the morning, watching the sunrise. That's like you're driving down the highway at 5 in the morning, watching the sunrise, listening to highway anxiety. 
just a gorgeous album. Yeah, shout out to w- WXPN, who uh, one of my favorite listening projects of this whole decade was the uh, Woodstock 50 project that they did, where they played Woodstock in its entirely, entirety uh, on the radio station is this past August. And they ended it Sunday morning after four days of music and commentary and chipmunk with William Tyler's Highway Anxiety, which uh, was how the... Um, uh, how the PBS documentary on Woodstock ended uh, as well. Just perfect way to do it. And one of my favorite records, an incredibly influential record of where my music listening habits would go in the latter half of the 2010s. Number 17. Some say I need to go beyond the pond. I say go fuck yourself. I'm going to Greenland. I'm going to a bunker in <laughs> Greenland. Uh, it's the 1980s. I'm an all-white and I see a turtle in the clouds. And you just did say that right out loud. I did, in front of other people. This is also what space smells like. Casvolt Voxed E-Rock. This is one of my favorite musical moments of the entire decade. I would argue this is Fish's best album since Round Room, perhaps their best album since Billy Breathes. It's an incredible collection of songs that sound both like Fish but completely different, pushes their music in a very different direction. Um, how many chances do you get? So my dad is the reason why I'm into music. My dad got me into music. He's played me my first songs, my first records, bought me my first records, told me to go to my bedroom in 13 and turn out the lights and put on Dark Side of the Moon and that I'll know what he's talking about when the album is over, which I did. Um, I took my dad to see Fish Halloween 2018. It was my first Fish Halloween show. It was his second Fish show. And I didn't know, you know, obviously what they were going to play. And we got a Fish, we had the playbill that uh, was this album cover, Casvolt Voxy Rock. And all signs pointed to this was an actual record from a legitimate band until the internet got onto it and uh, debunked this. But in the venue with bad internet service, I didn't know this until right around the time the second set started. And I'm sitting there with my dad, having some fun, having some beers, reminiscing. And at one point he goes, man, we're about to hear an album from a band that I should have heard that neither one of us have ever heard from your favorite band. This is one of the coolest moments of my entire life. And I was, I I like got like all warm and fuzzy, you know? And uh, it turned out to be a Fish record, which is still okay. But... Man, one of my favorite musical moments of the whole decade. Number 16 for me, Yola Tango's Fade. Uh, This came out in 2013. This is a masterpiece from the band. I would argue this is better than their most recent record. There's a riot going on. Um, I think this is one of their best records, one of their strongest outings of their whole career. It's a front-to-bottom, just incredible record of great songs, some bangers, some very thoughtful, uh, slower tunes like Two Trains, I saw them on this tour. They were doing an acoustic first set and then a full-on electric, fantastic second set. Really, really great record, great songs, and uh, absolutely love Yellow Tango's Fade.
All right. My number 15. White Denim D from 2011. This is a band that's undergone several lineup changes over the years, uh, kind of the two constants being singer-guitarist James Petrali, yes, son of 80s Major League Baseball Texas Rangers catcher Gino Petrali, and bassist Steve Terbecki. I mean, they've kind of never wavered in being an intricate, uh, being intricate guitar-indebted psych rock band. I don't think they ever got it quite as right as they did in 2011 with their third album, D. This is when they had a second guitarist named Austin Jenkins, who never met a Dickie Betts-style curly Q lead lick he didn't love. This is also the closest to any band is actually coming sounding like Fish. Not like, you know, jam bands sound like Fish, but sonically resembling Fish. I mean, it's like a funhouse mirror of an album that's got a roller coaster riffs, segues, weird-ass time signatures, and, you know, they remain a seriously fun rock band to this day. They've changed up a bit. They're a little more straightforward than they used to be. And because we're in Nashville... It's worth noting that they made a vinyl-only live album that they recorded at Third Man Records in 2011. That is The Bee's Knees. I mean, literally one of my favorite live albums ever. Even my wife likes it. So, yeah. Get yourself some D. My number 14, Savages. Silence Yourself from 2013. It's The Savages are kind of a severe, near-humorless, female post-punk quartet from various parts of Europe that it kind of arrived so fully formed and so awesome that this record would be seemingly impossible to follow up. And the 2016 follow-up, Adore, was very good. Not quite as good as Silence Yourself. They have an incredible rhythm section and Jenny Beth, incredible front woman. They have a guitarist and Gemma Thompson. She hasn't so much played lead riffs as a clang. She makes sinister noises. They're amazing live. And they only have two albums. I think they've kind of splintered into various side projects. I'm really hoping they come back strong sooner than later because they're, uh, the world is better off with them. My number 13 album is one that Brian just discussed. This is Yola Tango's Fade. I mean, kind of the piggyback what Brian was saying, no band has any business making an album this top to bottom awesome this late in their career. <laughs> Yola Tango is one of my favorite bands ever. This is some of their best songs ever. This was produced by John McIntyre. They went away from their usual producer, Roger Mutenote, and I think he kind of stretched them beyond their comfort zone, got them a whole bunch of new toys in his uh, Soma Studios in Chicago, and this is just an amazing top-to-back record. The opening song, Ohm, that's like a top-five Yola Tango song, and they played it like in acoustic and electric versions on the tour. They know it's a good song. I mean... I always expect Yola Tango to be good. Their taste is too good to put out a bad record, but even I was surprised by the quality of Fade from 2013. Number 12, Steve Mason, Monkey's Mind and the Devil's Time from 2013. Steve Mason is the former front man of the Beta Band, who with the three EPs in 1998 put out one of my favorite albums of all time. This is probably the closest he's ever come to doing like a full-on beta band record. This is a dark album. It's a psychedelic album. It has rock songs. It's quite solemn. He employs a gospel choir to great effect. It's an album you can really lose yourself in. I'm convinced that it didn't make as big a splash as it should have because the title is quite wordy. The album art is not that great, but of uh, the several solo albums he's put out since Dissolving the Beta Band, I think about 2004, this is my favorite. 
this is just a heady record. It's awesomely produced, and you can. He's a guy who's kind of trapped in his own head, for better or worse. And I think he actually went through some like depressive episodes. But this is uh He's been in a happier frame of mind since this record. And his last two albums, being about the light, meet the humans, also very good. But this one is still probably my favorite. Which brings us to our number, oh, my number eleven. Steve Gunn, Way Out Weather from 2014. Let's just say that I feel about Steve Gunn how most like 67 year old Caucasian guys feel about Eric Clapton. <laughs> Steve Gunn is my Eric Clapton. I will listen to his guitar, I will follow him to the edge of the earth. And this is just an album that kind of sounds like I think the Pitchfork Review said it kind of sounded like. Jerry Garcia and Dwayne Allman and John Fahey all jamming together at once. It's I just put it on on Sunday morning. I can forget about it. It plays itself. Side B is one of like the greatest 30-minute zone outs of anything I can remember. I like every Steve Gunn record a lot. This, to me, is his crowning achievement to date. But he could probably top it at some point. Fifteen is uh, Tim Hecker's Virgins, which came out in 2013. Uh, the discovery of Tim Hecker was one of those artists that uh, just completely took my interest in ambient music to a totally different level. A harmony of difference was passed to me yet again on the cesspool of Fantasy Tour in the summer of 2010, and uh, then Rave Death 1972 came out in 2011. But it was Tim Hecker's Virgins, and especially the segment Live Room and Live Room Out, that just completely blew my mind. Uh, This record was recorded, I believe, in a church in Reykjavik, Iceland. And it sounds very live. It sounds very much... It's the most... uh, It's it's his his record that most leaps from the page, if you will. Uh, I haven't totally fallen in love with his last two records that have come out this decade. But this was a hugely influential record for me and uh, still remains one of my favorite records of the overall decade. Number 14, I would argue that this is the best produced album of the decade. I believe, yeah. this, I believe this was recorded in this town. I think it's correct. Casey Musgraves, Golden Hour. Uh, 
I just don't know a better sounding, prettier record of the decade. I remember downloading or uh, putting this on my. So so every year I make quarterly podcast or quarterly playlists, uh, music twenty whatever, January through March, April through uh, June, so forth. This was one of the last records to go on my January through March playlist, and I threw it on kind of randomly as my wife and I and my son and our two cats at the time and our dog. We lost one of our cats when we moved out here, but we were driving to Denver this beautiful day through Kansas. And uh, it was spring 2018, and I said, hey, you want to listen to a record that uh, I've heard is pretty good, but I've never listened to? And I've said, sure. And I threw this album on, and we probably listened to it two or three more times before we actually got to Denver, because it's a great driving record. Uh, her lyrics are, you know, simple enough for literally everybody to relate to, but also carry some really wonderful depth. Casey's voice is beautiful. The uh, band that backs her up here sounds so pristine. And the producer for this was the guy who produced uh, Deeper Understanding, right? Sean Everett? Sean Everett. He was an engineer. He was an engineer, okay. There was a lot of excellent National Session musicians helped out. Yeah, Yeah. Sean Everett was a big uh, engineer mixer, I think. It just sounds so clear. It sounds like you have the best sound system ever every time you listen to it. Um, I saw her. She was the co-headliner right behind Brandy Carlisle at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival this last year. And unbelievable live performance. I, I cannot wait to see what she does now that she clearly has influence and pow- staying power and some money to make things happen. 13, speaking of Sean Everett, the war on drugs, a deeper understanding. Um, there was a moment where I thought this record might beat out Lost in a Dream just because the production value on it is so good. If you say Casey Musgraves' Golden Hour is the best sounding record of the decade, this is like tier 1A. Even can't even drop it that much. Um, it's just, it's a phenomenal sounding record. It's so well recorded. It's so cool to know that Adam Grandshield made a record like Lost in the Dream, which is going to be mentioned here, I believe by both of us here coming up soon, that was such a great record that then propelled him to be able to make a lot of money or a decent amount of money and he in turn threw that money into making an even better sounding record Uh, this is filled with jams uh, thinking of a place in particular the kind of vague sentiment surrounding that that song the music within that song it's just it's what you want out of the war on drugs and uh, a deeper understanding is definitely a record I revisit on a regular basis, uh, even if it doesn't have my heart as much as Lost in the Dream. If any other band made this record, this would be higher. You know, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, no, I I like Lost in the Dream. I mean, I like a deeper understanding very much. I like Lost in the Dream more. Deeper understanding would probably be in my top 50. Well, I think it's very, very good. Thinking of a place is an amazing song. Parts of it get a bit samey for me. I don't like it. I still like it as much as Lost in the Dream. Yeah, no, I still get it. very good. Number 12 for me is my number one record from 2016. Kevin Morby's Singing Saw. Uh, Kevin Morby was the bassist in uh, one of my favorite bands uh, of the last decade, Woods. Uh, he left in 2011, I believe, to pursue a solo career uh, and came out with... he's made three, uh, four records this decade Harlem River Singing Saw 
City Music and then Oh My God. Uh, Singing Saw is my favorite of the bunch. Dorothy is one of my jams of the decade. Uh, I Have Been to the Mountain is one of the best protest songs of the decade. Uh, Water is an amazing album closer. What a way to close out a record. I saw, I've seen him live uh, twice now and uh, saw him right after this tour, right after this album came out, right before City Music came out, and then saw him again in 2019 on the uh, Oh My God tour. And it was amazing to see how these singing song songs have just leaped, leaped from the stage and out of his guitar. He sounds so good with the band that he's in right now. And then rounding out my top 30 through 11 is Big Bill Callahan, Apocalypse. This came out in 2011. This is one of those records that really... Yet another one of those kind of like long-term investment albums for me really re-energized me in terms of my interest in singer-songwriters. And at a time when I was really getting into atmospheric noise and space and ambient music, uh, Bill Callahan's Apocalypse just kept me really thinking about acoustic singer-songwriters, thoughtful uh, uh, lyricists. Uh, Dream River was another one of my favorites. And then uh, uh, Shepherd in a, she- in a Sheepskin. This? Yeah, Shepherd in a Sheepskin Vest. They came out this year. Actually made my top 200. Great record as well. But Apocalypse, songs like America, um, that is one of my favorite songs about our country. Uh, one Fine Morning. Just some of the best insights from him into his world at the time, prior to becoming a dad. Um, I don't know, he sounds to me like languidly working through the fields in California. I don't know why. That's just kind of what I hear whenever I think of Bill Callahan, which I've done before. Uh, so number 11, Bill Callahan. This is my apocalypse. serious <laughs> this is the top 10 I'm gonna start I've got top my ten. the top 10 of the of 2010s the yes I have at my number 10 the self-titled record from a band called Viet Cong long story they're currently called Preoccupations when this album came out they were called Viet Cong they are Canadian they took the rhythm section from the 2000s Canadian band Women, and they are just, it kind of hits all of my pressure points, being post-punk bass lines, shoegaze noise, cavernous goth atmospherics, band members that sound like they're a little out of touch with their feelings, and when they stop playing music, are going to do something awful, 
But supposedly they're actually pretty nice, very well-adjusted, normal dudes. But my God, this album, it's driving post-punk with an amazing rhythm section and shouted vocals, and it just sounds overly serious. It sounds like bang your head against the wall. It sounds like racing against the clock. And I just can't get enough of this album. And their follow-up albums, as preoccupations, pretty good. Their most recent one, I think, came out last year called New Material. It's quite excellent. But really, you got to start with the debut album, Viet Cong, from 2013. My goodness. album that Dave talked about and this is my only band in the top 10 that has two records The National Trouble Will Find Me Um, honestly if you'd asked me for the majority of the decade where this record would have ended up in my top albums list I would think I would have said it would not have even made my top 200 and then right around the time that Sleep Well Beast came out in 2017 I re-listened to this record in a listening project I was doing going chronologically through every national album. And then I saw the national live in December of 2017 and the Trouble Will Find Me songs were the songs that completely blew my brain apart. And I rediscovered this album in full about three albums later. As someone who was already a fan of the national, this was the grower national record for me. I think this is alongside Boxer, the most national-sounding national album that's ever been made. And I say that in a loving way. Uh, Musically, it is very clear what their intentions are, as opposed to Sleep Well Beast, which was muddled by effects and kind of sonic musicianship and experimentation. This is a straightforward national record in the best ways. some of my favorite songs to see live are included on this record. And what Matt Berenger, the Desner brothers, and the Devendorf brothers do is communicate who they are clearly, plainly, to us all in a way that, uh, I don't know, I just love it. I love what they're doing on this record. This is the last time Graceless, Pink Rabbits... 
hard to find, uh, humiliation even. Uh, I should live in salt. One of one of their strongest album openers. A really unique way to open the album. Uh, sea of Love. What am I forgetting? Um, on that album, you kind of hit all the. You said Pink Rabbits. I said Pink Rabbits. Okay. I know I'm forgetting something. Graceless? No, you got Graceless. No, I got Graceless. She's a viva, my believer. Oh, um, oh God. Don't swallow the cap. Don't swallow. Oh yeah, don't swallow the cap. Don't swallow the cap. That's like the fifth song in every national show. Yes. Every national show now, it's like four songs off the new record. And then don't swallow swallow the cap. cap. (laughs) I saw when I saw the national. Heaven face, I like a lot. Yeah, heaven face is great. When I saw the national in early September of this year. Uh, I saw two nights and one night featured Don't Swallow the Cap and the other night was See a Love in that slot and it's like those two songs fill the slot that they're looking for of hey remember our old songs these rule and the fact that they're coming off of their album two albums earlier which is now Trouble Will Find Me is really cool to me um, but this album is just filled with fantastic songs that just sound like the national and I've listened to this record dozens of times in the last year probably hundreds of times since 2013 and uh so that is my number 10 i couldn't find quiet i went out in the rain i was just soaking my head going right on my brain Somebody said you disappeared in a crowd I didn't understand that I don't understand that Am I the one you think about When you're sitting in your fainting chair Drinking pancreas Am I the one you think about When you're sitting in your fainting chair Drinking pancreas And everybody was gone Stand in the street Cause you're trying not to crack up It wasn't like a rain It was more like a sea I didn't ask for this pain It just came over me I love a stone But I don't love lightning And all the water's coming up So fast it's frightening Am I the one you think about When you're sitting in your fainting chair Drinking pancreas Am I the one you think about When you're sitting in your fainting chair Drinking pancreas And everybody was gone I was standing on the street Cause I was trying not to cry I was solid gold I was in the fight I was coming back From what seemed like a road I couldn't see you coming so far Let's just turn around And there you are I'm so surprised you wanna dance with me now I was just getting used to living life without you around I'm so surprised you wanna dance with me now You always said I held you way too high off the ground You didn't see me, I was falling apart I was a white girl in a crowd of white girls in a park You didn't see me, I was falling apart I was a television version of a park 
My number nine is a modern dance band from Australia called Cut Copy. The album is called Zonoscope. I love Cut Copy. I think that they are the 2000s, 2010s band most indebted to the spirit of New Order, who actually appeared on this podcast as well recently. They kind of, they take New Order, they take Erasure, just this really fun 80s dance pop, and they push it forward into the future. I think Zonoscope is my favorite record of theirs, because it takes a lot of the stuff that they did on um, their 2008 record, In Ghost Colors, and it makes it long form. The songs are longer, they segue together, they use more beats, different beats, better beats, tons of synths, tons of cowbell. But at the same time, it's all catchy. I say it passes the erasure test. Because like erasure songs, you can just jump up and sing them out loudly with your friends and jump 10 feet in the air. We played an erasure song at my wedding. And my second cousin and his wife were like jumping up and down singing all the lyrics. Cut copy is the same way. When they're good, they just hit you and you just want to jump to the roof. This album has songs like Pharaohs and Pyramids, the song Elisa, the song Need You Now, the opener. They just explode into walls of danceable sound. And I'm just happy that this band exists. They kind of sagged a bit a bit in the 2013 album, being uh, Free Your Mind. I thought they had a nice little comeback with their album Haiku from Zero in 2017. But to me, 2011, Zonoscope at this point represents the career peak. It's just the electro-pop dance floor album for the ages. self-titled album from 2011 from the Justin Vernon-led project Bon Iver. Uh, this came out in, I think, May of 2011. I didn't really get hip to it until October of 2011. I, I remember downloading it, throwing it on my iPod, jumping on my bike after a brunch service at work at Irving Street Kitchen in Portland, Oregon. And I uh, rode home, crossed the river, through the uh, lily-white liberal suburbs of Portland. The leaves were just turning color. It was absolutely beautiful out. 
super fall afternoon and uh, this record just hit home in a huge way. It was my number one record of 2011. And it's one of those records that the more I listen to it, the more I just have no idea what is going on in the album. And that there's such an intrigue for me in terms of what Bon Iver is doing on this record. The songs seem to bleed into each other. You know, there are tracks like Minnesota, Wisconsin that doesn't exist. It's a, it's a, there's no place called Minnesota, Wisconsin. It just doesn't exist, but it's like an idea of space that I absolutely love from this record. Beth Rest is a phenomenal closer. It really just showcases the full spectrum of what that band could do. Uh, before they basically abandon their project over the next uh, six years or five years and came back with 22 a million and then I, I this year, two records that I connected with 22 a million. I have not connected as much with I, I. This record really encapsulates the peak of what I love about Bon Iver and what I love about what Justin Vernon can do from a vocal standpoint, from a songwriting standpoint, from a musical standpoint. Uh, this is one of those automatic road trip albums for me. If I'm going on a road trip with my family, it always goes on and is one of those records that my wife is always going to be into. She's always going to want to, li- to want to listen to. My son seems to like, and I love. So it always goes on in the car and uh, it's kind of followed me around the country as I've traveled. So Bon Iver, Bon Iver, my number nine record. My number eight record. This album came out in 2010. Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Is there a bigger record from 2010? No. This was my favorite album from 2010. The biggest record from 2010. And this is when we thought Kanye West was going to be a universe-beating important artist for many years to come. The first song on this album asks, can we get much higher? And the answer would be no. <laughs> and this is the best Kanye record. And then he kind of fell apart into the, uh, 
Well, actually, I mean, in 2013, he put out Yeezus, which I think Brian likes more than I do. But at the very least, that had, like, some musical value. But there was a time before he became the weirdo, Kim Kardashian-loving, Trump-supporting, just, like, mega no-talent troll that he is now. He put out an incredible record. This is a fantastic hip-hop album. Start to finish, every song, it's got the best beats, he has the best rhymes, he brings out the best guests. This was basically everyone's introduction to Nicki Minaj and her voice, her verse on Monster. It's still probably her peak moment. This is the album that brought you, I think, Kid Cudi, I think Rick Ross had a verse on this album. Just everything is interconnected, it's fun, it bangs, it has songs like Power, it's got... I just remember when this album came out, me and some buddies had volunteered at a beer festival from Massachusetts. And after the beer festival, we were, you know, slightly intoxicated. Went back to my friend's house and had this huge, moshing Kanye West dance party where we played this album super, super loud and just ran into each other. And you kind of had to be there. For, like, uh, the four, for the four dudes that were there, it was a really good time. But this is just... Nothing that Kanye has done since this record will defeat the fact that this album and the albums that preceded it being late registration and graduation, the college dropout, were all excellent records. This is the peak, and fuck, it's been hauled downhill from there. I don't know how he ever comes back from what he's doing now. I don't know he's supposed to have a record called Jesus is King dropping soon that I'm sure it's going to be fucking terrible. Because everything he's done lately has been terrible. But, ten years ago, he was, he was the future. But now, we've got Kendrick Lamar. So we don't really need Kanye anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do like Yeezus more than my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. But I, You're I, insane. <laughs> that's just, that's, that's crazy talk. I mean, sonically, what Yeezus does is, I think, the most interesting thing we've ever had from Kanye West. Um, on sight. I mean, come on. On sight. Uh, I do love Bound 2. Bound 2 is the best song on the album. I love Bound 2. Bound 2 is basically a beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy song grafted on the Yeezus. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like, that's got nothing to do with Yeezus. <laughs> um, I will never forget the summer of 2010 when Good Friday singles were being dropped. And every Friday, you just got that much more excited for whatever Kanye was doing. And you have to remember at the time, uh, 808s and Heartbreak was his last record, which was a very yeah, personal album. Record. Yeah, 808s, I kind of, that's important. I kind of left it out of the narrative, but that's, yeah, 808s kind of paid the that way for Drake. That kind of predicts a lot of what came from Kanye following My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Yeah. My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy almost to me feels like a greatest hits record that none of the hits were known before, if that makes any sense. Oh, totally. It's... A greatest hits album without the hits. It's everything that you love about this artist in one place without the hits. Exactly. Like every... Plus, hey, fucking Bon Iver. Right, Bon Iver was on bon there. Was that, on was, that, that was some huge street credit for Bon Iver. Yeah. Uh, or for Justin Vernon, I Remember should say. at the release party at Barry Bar and Bon Iver, like, hanging out on stage at the Barry Bar, and I know where the hell he was during that. When I lived in Portland, I would go... 
before I got a job, I would just go out and I'd, I was very Forrest Gumpy in, in the fact that I would just go outside and I was running. Okay. And I would throw on Dark Fantasy. And I'd get like six blocks from my house. And the second everything came in, you know, like, I was like, can we get much higher? I was like, I was, I was like, I had goosebumps. I fantasized about this back in Chicago. Like, when that happened, I was like gone for the next mile. It's unbelievable. It's one of my favorite memories of the whole decade. Shoot the lights out Until it's bright out Oh, just another lonely night Are you willing to sacrifice your life? Bitch, I'm a monster, no good blood sucker Fat motherfucker, now look who's in trouble As you run through my jungles, all you hear is rumbles Kanye West samples, here's one for example Gossip, gossip, nigga, just stop it Everybody know I'm a motherfucking monster I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert Profit, profit, nigga, I get it Everybody know I'm a motherfucking monster I'ma need to see your fucking hands at the concert I'ma need to see your fucking hands uh, the best living or dead, hands down, huh? Let's talk more here right now, huh? And my eyes more red than the devil is. And I'm about to take it to another level, bitch. Now who you going with, yeah. Ain't nobody cold as this. Do the rap and the track, triple double, no assist. And my only focus is staying on some bogus shit. Arguing with my older bitch, acting like I owe a shit. I heard the beat, the same raps that gave the track pain. Bought the chain that always give me back pain. Fucking up my money, so yeah, I had to act same. Shy nigga, but these hoes. Love my accent. She came up to me and said, This the number two dial. If you wanna make it number one, you're number two now. Miss that goose in Malibu, I call it Malibu, yeah. Goddamn, easy, I would hit him with a new style. Know that motherfucker, well, what you gon' do now? Whatever I wanna do, gosh, it's cool now. Now I'm gonna do, ah, it's new now. Think you motherfucker really, really need to cool out. Alright, so my number eight is one of the earliest records I remember hearing in 2010. This was a huge build-up record for me. So, man, this site and this username is getting a ton of shout-outs here. Uh, I apologize to anyone who does not like Fantasy Tour. I don't really like Fantasy Tour anymore, but I spent a lot of time on it in 2009, 2010. And Logic Era posted a... He, he used to... This, this dude, like, changed the way I listened to music in the early 2010s. He would post playlists every month. And there were just like songs he was listening to seasonally. And he threw up a playlist in late October, early November 20, 2009. And it had the Beach House song, Gia, on it. Are you familiar with that song? I'm not. Not that song. Not that Beach okay. House song. But. Well, it begins with this just epic riff from Alex Scali. And then Victor, Victoria Legrand's... Uh, vocals come in and I didn't know at the time if it was a man or woman singing it just like was very androgynous and I really liked it and the song just like totally it, it made me like put this band on my radar in such a huge way and uh, their album Teen Dream I knew was coming out at the time in February of 2010 and I was looking forward to it like crazy. And it came out, 
And front to back, Teen Dream is one of my most listened records of the entire decade. Zebra, Silver Soul, Norway, 10 Mile Stereo, used to be better times. I mean, there's just so many good songs on this record. It's the best Beach House record that's ever been made. It's probably the best Beach House record that ever will be made. Their next record, Bloom, eh, just kind of felt like Teen Dream all over again, but not as good. Uh, Depression Cherry did not do anything for me. Seven was a huge record for me in mid-2018, but didn't totally hold up. It's probably in my top 200, but not my top 100 even. Uh, This record is just of a time and place. Chill Wave had completely taken off. This sound of this band that almost was careless, but had really good recording techniques and sounded slightly European, slightly American at the same time. Um, the idea of having like a DJ being your drummer. I saw them live at Pitchfork Fest that summer. The only the only time I've ever been to Pitchfork Fest, they actually put on a really good show. And I just can't stop listening to this record. I remember when I was starting the project back in mid-August to listen to all my 200 favorite records of the decade to figure out where they ranked. This came on early because it was in chronological order. And my wife goes, this has to be in your top 10. And just the fact that she knew it, I knew it. It's it's right here. It's a great record. And big shout out to Trey Anastasio of the band Fish, if you guys are familiar. Uh, he noted after the 527-2011 waves, uh, that Bethel run, one of my favorite fish runs of the entire decade, that the waves was a tribute to Alex Scali's guitar playing from Beach House. And it sounds completely lifted from what Alex Scali does. So really amazing stuff there. Uh, really amazing record. I can't get enough of this. So Beach House Teen Dream is my number eight. That is by far my favorite Beach House record. Walk in the Park, 10,000 Mile Stereo, all uh, extremely good songs.
to number seven. I'm getting there. My number seven is Wooden Ships. Five. Like the, like the Roman numeral five. Let's just say that being 40 years old, Ripley Johnson, <laughs> the man just speaks to me. It's just like the kind of Chuglin summertime guitar solos I can just put on and not think too hard about it. And it's good, and the guitar solos worm their way into my brain. So I like walk down the street and have wooden ship songs in my head. The other band he has uh, with his wife, Moon Duo, kind of does the same thing. Out of all the wooden ships records, five is like the most chill. The most which kind of sounds like a 40-year-old dad's head. I know he wanted it to be like a summertime record. He put out a record this year under the alias The Rose City Band, which kind of did very much the same thing. He's like got a niche. He knows what's good, and he knows how to make it work. And this Wooden Ships record with all his buddies on the West Coast is just a chuglin' good time. It's not overly ambitious. It doesn't ask most of the listener, but it's really... More and more what I want to hear in my head now at this point in my life. My number seven is my the only record from 2019 to make my top ten. Cosmicomb's Tip of the Sphere. This record... So in 2008, I was living in Alaska. One of my close friends, Colin Warren, passed me Dropping the Writ, which was one of my favorite records. Potentially my favorite record of that year. Um, although Person Pitch would probably be my number one. Um, and then I kept following Cass throughout his career. Catacombs in 2009... Wits End in 2011, uh, Big Wheel in 2013, and Manju Love in 2016. Uh, those three records all ended up in my top 200, but none of them had that thing to like really capture what I was looking for musically. I still I always loved Cass. I saw him in 2011 and 2014. He put on great shows. Particularly his 2014 show, The Empty Bottle, was the first time I really heard him as like a potential jam band. And this record came out, and this record is as indie jam as it gets. I mean, there's a freaking free lick in the, in the album. The last song, Rounder, 
Yeah, this is a great album. Even though it came out this year, it's definitely worthy of your top ten. But yeah, the song Rounders got that big D major free lick that makes it sound like a jam out of that song. Yeah, and that turns into a full-on jam. I mean, I saw him play that. It was like a 13-minute song when I saw him in March. Um, this is just everything I ever wanted from Cass and never expected, never knew he was capable of doing this. Uh, every song on this record connects with me. Uh, it is one of my favorite records that's been made of the entire decade. I mean, it's number seven for a reason. It beat out a lot of records that I've loved throughout the entire decade, and it really combines where I'm, where I've been at throughout most of my listening life in terms of loving great lyrics, in terms of loving guitar-led rock and roll, with feeling this sense of discovery over the last 12 to 15 months of finding bands that love to write really well-written songs, really well-crafted songs, and want to expand upon them and want to jam upon them. And that's something that's super important to me, and this record represents that. So tip of the sphere, I'm so excited to see how much I listen to this as we move into the next decade. But it absolutely earned a spot here in my top 10 of the 2010s. Fantastic record. It'll probably be in my top 20 of this year for sure. So now we're getting to... Um, I cheat a tiny bit here. <laughs> my number six album is The Horrors, Primary Colors. Technically, it came out in 2009. I want to say I think it came out in June of 2009. However, I didn't start listening to it until January of 2010. I don't think it really gained traction in the mind of like American folk until about 2010 when they started touring around here and I just for me I associate 2010 with that album because I'm not sure I listened to another album in 2010 more than The Horrors Primary Colors The Horrors are a British band who I think they most recently put out their fifth album 
Primary Colors was their second album. It was produced by a co-produced produced with Jeff Barrow from Portishead. And this, basically, it's kind of like the band burrowed into my mind and taken all I like about British music and post-punk and goth and shoegaze and just put it into one incredible 10-song package. Like, shoegaze, check. The Phil Spector, Be My Baby drum beat, check. Post-punk bass lines that kind of sound like Interpol, if Interpol had a clue how to evolve beyond 2002, check. <laughs> Gothic, lovelorn vocals, kind of like spiritualized, epic druggy ballads, all here. It's just, if you love British rock and roll, if you love all the genres which I mentioned, if you love My Bloody Valentine, if you love Depeche Mode, all the things I love, this album, it just nails it. The last wrongs, uh, the last song on the album is a Krautrock epic called Sea Within a Sea. That was like the first single, which came with like a very stylized video that made you feel like, oh, okay, these guys are for real. It was the first Horrors record. It was kind of like a crampsy, goth punk, uh, you know, not bad, but definitely not even scratching the surface what these guys are capable of. But this second album was a statement of purpose. And they bring it live. There's just, there's a song that's on my favorite song, probably called Scarlet Fields, which kind of sounds like My Bloody Valentine invading like an Interpol recording session. It makes you think that Interpol, like, if they had developed and had thought how they were going to sound beyond like the first two records, they could have sounded like the horrors and they could have evolved. And right now, I mean, the horrors, they're like, like the fifth album, I think. Like, they're really pushing forward as a band. They're one of like the few British bands that got their start in the mid-2000s that are totally for real. So, but I would definitely say start with this record and then the three that have come out since are all very good. This is still their peak and it still uh, gets me excited to tell you about it. So... So my number six is The Walkman Heaven. So I was introduced to The Walkman a little bit late. Lisbon was my introduction to The Walkman, and I worked backwards from there. And then Heaven came out. And I remember the first time I listened to it being really bored. And being like, well, this just sounds like The Walkman. 
You know, it doesn't sound like they're trying anything new. And then I kept listening, and I found myself just going back to it. And it ended up being my favorite record of 2012. And then I moved overseas in early 2013 to Korea, and I have this like very distinct memory. I, I my wife and I uh, had a mission when we were there to take solo vacations to go to different cities in Korea that neither one of us had ever been to alone it being one of the safest countries to travel in as a solo American we could do this and I went to uh, the city Gwangju which is a college town in uh, southeastern southwestern uh, Korea and I remember walking around the party district just listening to albums. Going in, having a beer, going walking out, listening to a full album. Going in, having a beer, walking out, listening to a full album. And I remember throwing on Heaven, kind of unexpected. I hadn't listened to it in a long time. And it just hit on such a deep level. And about a month later, the band broke up. And I remember being really sad that they broke up. And I remember listening to this album with totally refined ears and totally refined mind at that point in time, hearing it as, you know, this group of dads that just needed to go into a different direction. And as I became a dad, and as Dave and I became friends, and both of us, you know, learned that we both loved the Walkmen, it just became that much more of an important record for me. And... I go back and I listen to this record over and over again and it's one of those albums that just makes me think about life makes me think about how much I love my kid makes me think about my friends and just kind of makes me think about where I love a lot of my favorite bands at this point in time in terms of artists that have a good thing going have a good space to create music have something to write about that really strikes at the heart of the human experience and I think that this album does that in a very honest and very simple and straightforward way that I could honestly listen to this record 10 years from now 20 years from now, 30 years from now I know it's going to mean something completely different and I know that every time I hear this record it's going to kind of follow me throughout my life in a really unique way. So The Walkman Heaven, I don't know if it's the best record that The Walkman have ever made from an uh, uh, objective standpoint, but from a sub- subjective point, it's definitely my favorite record that they've ever made. And uh, I just wish that one of them would get together with the other guys and say, we should do another tour. We should re-explore some of these songs 10 years on because they definitely deserve it. They're a really phenomenal band. I've seen Hamilton Lighthouser live. He's excellent live. The band deserves another tour to play some of these songs because they're just so fantastic. But Heaven from The Walkman, one of my favorite records of the decade.
also uh, just kind of giving you um, an idea where we're at. We're actually recording this at the same time, watching uh, Game 2 of the American League Division Series. Yankees, Twins. This is all over for the shouting. Didi Gregorius just hit a grand slam and kind of pimped it unnecessarily. Now it's seven... Yankees 7, Minnesota nothing, which... Uh, it's probably the most irrelevant playoff game yeah. of the entire playoffs thus far. It's irrelevant, and the Yankees are awful people, and uh, their owners are awful, so... <laughs> Fuck I, Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, if like Rudy Giuliani likes a team, you know there's something very, very, very wrong with that team. <laughs> Poor Rocco Baldelli, he's just sitting in the dugout, wishes he was listening to like, his fairy fish jams, and he's got a brave face on. There's got to be a great Craig Finn song that's going to come out of this, though. Yeah, definitely about how, like, Rocco's all of us. Rocco Baldelli, born and raised in Rhode Island, playing for the Rays, gets his chance to manage the big team. Anyway. We've reached our top five. We have reached our top five. And it's, uh, it, it gets hotter out, and it gets later. we drinking more, but we're at the top five. So we're, we're gonna here, get man. There. We're here. These are the top five albums. Of the entire decade. For us, anyway. My number five. Sturgill Simpson. Metamodern sounds and country music. So this was not the first Sturgill Simpson solo record. That would have been High Top Mountain. When this came out in 2014, this is my first real introduction to Sturgill Simpson. I think kind of most of Greater America's introduction to Sturgill Simpson... And this is just a country music record par excellence. I mean, everyone says that he sounds a lot like Waylon Jennings vocally, and he does. These are just very well-written songs. I'm pretty sure this was a Dave Cobb production. Is that right? I think so, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's just just the right amount of reverb on his vocals, just the right amount of, like, live in-studio sound. And this was, we didn't realize at the time, but Sturgill Simpson was well on his way to becoming one of our great, like, country rock polymath, like, contrarians, because, my God, the album he just put out sounds nothing like this album. It sounds like a crazy ZZ Top Eliminator sleaze rock throwdown. But at least for a time in 2014, he was seen as, like, the great next outlaw country guy. And in a sense, he lived up to the outlaw billing by kind of zigging where everyone expected him to zag. I know the follow-up album to this, um, Sailor's Guide to Earth, more country politan, had a horn section, a little more on the jam bandy tip. But with this record, and when he toured behind it, he had an incredible guitar player, uh, Little Joe, no longer in his band. But this guy was like Dwayne Allman levels of awesome. And some of the... Uh, high-flying guitar antics at these recent, at these Sturgill Simpson shows back in 2014, 2015 were like almost like almonds in their awesome audacity. So, yeah, but this guy became one of the most fun artists of the decade to watch, and this is where it all began for me. I have to listen to this record on a very regular basis. It still has some of my favorite songs, maybe my favorite Sturgill record, although, uh, the latest one, Sound and Fury, is quickly climbing that ladder in its audacity. So, but this for me is where it begins with Owen Sturgill Simpson. So, good enough to be my number five. Well, things have been a little complicated. 
Quality life has got me down Well, sex is cheap and talk is overrated And the boys and me still working on the sound Well, a little happiness, a little love was all I wanted Sure as hell thought I'd found it, but I was wrong Left my heart feeling tormented And my memories all haunted But it's her I have to thank all my songs So every day I'm smoking my brain hazy All I can do to keep from going crazy But the paranoia slowly creeping in Oh, I keep drinking myself silly On the way for this hellbilly all right, so before I go with my number five, I want to say we're sitting out here on the corner, once again, of Greenwood and Potter Road. It has been a phenomenal afternoon for us hanging out at Vinyl Tap, which is a really incredible bar record store which every city should have one of these. Yeah, I don't know why it hasn't caught on. <laughs> like, the idea of Vinyl Tap LA, Vinyl Tap New York, Vinyl Tap Charlotte, Vinyl Tap Santa Fe, Vinyl Tap Denver, or any variation of that. I cannot imagine why this has not caught on. This is an incredible establishment. We're going to go and do some record shopping following this. Uh, we've been chatting with the owners of the place. There are... The most recent Grateful Dead release from East Rutherford is on high display. Uh, the War on Drugs, A Deeper Understanding album cover is loud and proud from within the, uh, the store. There are some great people hanging out on the patio here. We've got muscle cars walking up. We just, we love this place. We love this city. We were originally going to uh, record this in four parts at four different establishments. And we just got really comfortable and had a really good spot here. So we just, we ended up sticking here. It's a good place. So my number five is unquestionably the latest album to end up on my list. For good reason, though. Low, double negative. So I got past Lowe's 2011 album by Brian Weaver. And that opens with a song called Try to Sleep. That's one of my favorite songs of the entire decade. And totally opened my eyes up to this band. And I continued to listen to them throughout the decade. I went back through their back catalog. And then I remember when Double Negative was announced, I didn't think too much of it because I hadn't totally loved what they had done throughout the decade. Ones and sixes did not really connect with me, although in hindsight it did. And I remember putting this record on sometime last September 2018. And I remember reading someone, I want to say it was Jason Green, but I think I might be wrong about this. Someone described this record as though you recorded an album to tape and then put it out in the sun and let it just wither. And it sounds exactly like that. It sounds like these are all songs that have been allowed to distort beyond recognition in a way that most bands would never, ever allow to go to print. 
This is my number two record of 2018. If we did this, if we did that list again, it would be my number one record. Responsible for one of the best live shows I saw all decade. And I, every time I listen to this record, it just captivates me in a completely new way. It teaches me things. There's unexpected gems that I hear every time I listen to it. And seeing it live and seeing the band recreate these sounds that felt like they could only be done through studio uh, was just such a unique and incredible musical moment throughout uh, the decade for me. So low double negative. This really shines a light on the experimental side of what I like to listen to and kind of combined full band guitar-led music with the ambient music I was really into throughout the early part of the decade. So I cannot recommend Lowe's Double Negative enough. Double negative is a hell of a record. I will, uh, I will second you in that, Brian. So here's a number four that uh, I'm sure both you and our listeners, and our listeners of our listeners, will be familiar with. It's the War on Drugs, Lost in the Dream. <laughs> yeah. So we talk about a lot about the War on Drugs in this podcast, and this album. I mean. This combines everything I like about 80s Dire Straits and Bruce Hornsby and Don Henley and puts it into one great, beautiful, lyrical, classic rock package that I think I'm going to listen to for the rest of my life and continue to enjoy. It's a great road album. It's a great Sunday morning album. and just kind of captures a lot of what I look for in my music in that it sounds immaculate. It's always moving forward. It sounds hopeful. It sounds like a beautiful spring morning. And I think Brian's probably going to have a little bit more to say about it. But suffice it to say, this is both an album and a band that's been instrumental in our relationship and this podcast. So anyone who's been on board from the beginning knows how we feel about this band. So as not to belabor the point, I'll, uh, I'll hand it off. Oh, no. 
so my number four, Dave mentioned this uh, earlier in the in the chat here, in the episode. Vampire Weekend and Modern Vampires of the City. So <clears throat> I'll set the scene really quick. This was my number one record of 2013. This came out in the spring of 2013. Like I still remember, I was 28 at the time, 27, 28. My wife and I had just gone back to Korea. We were dedicating a year to saving money, writing, yoga, running, cooking uh, from uh, farm to table type of ways. We, we had a 24-7, 365 seasonal farmer's market, half a mile from our house we used all the time. Traveling, we ended up traveling a ton. And this record came out about two months into that experience. Basically, from March 1st, 2013 to July 22nd, 2014, we were on the road. And it's a formative moment of my entire life. It's something that, as I move into this next decade, it's going to be with me. Uh, it's going to be an experience that we had, that we shared, that we did. Even knowing that there were risks involved, knowing that we were putting kind of careers on hold, that we were putting the norms of what we should have been doing on hold. And we were kind of going after this one last gasp of what our youth could mean and what we could accomplish as a couple and as well as individuals. And this record came out and it just defined all that. We both loved it immensely. I can't tell you how many mornings one of us would go out for a run and come back and just be like, holy shit, I listened to Side A of Modern Vampires of the Weekend and it made me run faster than I've ever run. And I remember going down to Busan with my buddies, Brett Dowdy and Dallas Way. And we got into a cab at about 2 o'clock in the morning. I think I told this on our top albums of 2013 episode, but it's too good. We got into a cab at about 2 o'clock in the morning and put on Hannah Hunt. And we had the cab, cab driver you know, humming along with us, old Korean man. I mean, this record... It's the best Vampire Weekend record I think that they've ever made. I really like what Ezra Koenig's done with Father of the Bride, but Modern Vampires of the Weekend, Modern Vampires of the City, really showcases Vampire Weekend as they moved out of that weird kind of collegiate band that represented partying, kind of throwing responsibilities to the wind to a band that had seen death, that had understood the importance of living, the importance of doing your best, the importance of friendship, the importance of family, the importance of continuing to learn, the importance of admitting ignorance. All of this was in this record in a way that connected with me on a very deep level. When I listen to it now, I hear 28-year-old me in it while also seeing the aspects of myself at that era, at that age, continuing into my 34th and 35th years. So I absolutely love this record. This would still be my number one record of 2013. And there's a huge reason why 2013 I look back at as one of the biggest years of the decade for me musically and why this is my number four album of the decade. If I can't trust you, then damn it, Hannah. There's no future, there's no answer. Though we live on the U.S. dollar, you and me, we got our own sense of time.
So my number three is an album that I always liked since it came out, but over the past few years, after I've become a dad and my daughter has gradually grown up to be the age of five, I've come to enjoy even more and more. This is the three California sisters that comprise the band Haim, H-A-I-M. Album is Days Are Gone. Now, the word about Haim is that they're kind of like 80s Fleetwood Mac fantasy camp, which is basically correct. And Christine they, McVie, specifically. Exactly, Christine McVie. They specialize in these very... Christine McVie sounding like 80s Fleetwood Mac songs with all the harmony vocals and lubby-dubby lyrics and like drum machines and riffs, all of that all provides. But the songs are perfect. This is like an immaculately produced, immaculately sounding record. Every song is just hooks on top of hooks on top of hooks. It's like a pop masterpiece of an album. And the album that came after it in um, 2016, Something to Tell You, also, maybe 2017 actually, also very fantastic record, kind of took all the strengths of the first album and then magnified it. But, I mean, with this album, what's crazy is that my five-year-old daughter loves it. She loves Haim. She, like, makes us watch Haim videos on TV and like dances around the room to Haim and likes the new Vampire Weekend songs that have like Daniel Haim singing co-vocals. She says that Haim are, at one point she said, they're my heroes. And I'm thinking, (laughs) these are like really positive female role models. They like write really good songs. They love being sisters with each other. And we've got a five-year-old and a five-month-old. And just that I think that like my daughter like values her younger sister at five months i think that like seeing this band like heim that happen to be sisters and really get a kick out of each other it really helps you get a kick out of her baby sister i don't know but it's just watching her love all these songs that i like i've gotten a really big kick out of being a dad thinking like okay this is like one of her first experiences with the band and really getting in the music and wanting us to play music this is now that we can play in the car all the time and my wife loves them my daughter loves them I love them they're really good live I saw them radio city music hall Lizzo opened before Lizzo was a really big thing and just that uh, it's a perfect pop album that my whole family can appreciate and for that it's my number three until the moment like I'm standing at the edge I know that no one's gonna turn me just one more step, I could let go. I'm in the middle. I hear the voices and they're calling for me now. I know that nothing's gonna wake me now. Cause I'm a slave to the sound. And they're calling, don't stop, no, I'll never give up. And I'll never look back, just hold your head up. And if it gets rough,
So my number three. This is honestly a surprise for me in this spot. I thought this was going to be my number two all decade. All decade. And then... I re-listened to my top 200 and I had to be honest with myself. It's not as though this had dropped. It's that the one that comes after this is just more relevant to what I want to hear. But this is one of my most important records of the decade. It's one of my favorite records of the decade, clearly. It's in my number three spot. That is the Nationals High Violet. So, a bit of context, I hated the Nationals. I thought they were boring. I thought Matt Berenger was a poor man's Chris Isaac. And I heard very sameness, one-noteness from the band. Every time I heard them, people constantly told me, have you ever listened to the National? Are you a fan of the National? And my only response was, yeah, I've heard them. I found them pretty boring. And then High Violet came out. And the album opens up with the... Terrible Love intro. It's one of my favorite opening tracks of the whole decade. Anyone's Ghost, Blood Buzz Ohio, Little Faith, Lemon World, Lemon World, 72 takes, 71 takes, whatever it was to make that perfect song, England. And I went back and I remember listening to this record and being like, holy shit, this is incredible. May of 2010, my little apartment in Korea. And I went back and I listened to Boxer and I heard it in a totally different way. I suddenly heard Brian Devendorf's drums. They popped out. I suddenly heard the production value of the Desno Brothers. I went back and I listened to Alligator and I heard this album from this band in their mid-twenties just moved to New York City recording this record that completely blew my brain in terms of what they were singing about, what they were saying. Went back and listened to Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers, which is such a great formative second album for the band. Even their self-titled debut has so much on it that I absolutely fell in love with. And this started this whole decade-long love affair that I had with this band that led to Trouble Will Find Me, Sleep Well Beast, one of the most anticipated records for us in 2017, and I Am Easy to Find, which I don't think we would say is their best record, but is a really cool left turn for the band this far into their career. Really interesting. It keeps things really interesting. Yeah. It's a... Uh... Not my favorite national record, but it shows a band that wants to keep things interesting and reinvent themselves. Absolutely. With varying results. I saw them live. Uh, I've seen them live now four times, two times here in 2019. The High Violet tracks just are, they, they, they blow, blow me away. Uh, I got to sit front row one of the nights in September and uh, got a hug from Matt Berenger during Day I Die off of sleep all beast but the whole show none of it would have happened without me hearing high violet which was easily from may 2010 through the end of the year easily my favorite record of the year uh there's only i want to say four years this decade where i've had an album come out and i knew from day one that that was my favorite record of the decade 2010 2014 2016 and 2019 I'm keeping 2019's under wraps though but when this came out to the end of the year I knew it was my number one it was my favorite record of the entire decade until another album that's still to come came out and this would all, this would be in my top two 
if it weren't for my number two record that completely blew me away. But National High Violet, huge shout out to an incredibly fascinating, interesting, thoughtful, very difficult to record record for the band that I still love to this day. special because uh <laughs> your number three is national high violet and my number two is the national high violet how's that for a segue <laughs> i love this band i started seeing this band in 2005 when the album when alligator came out and then boxer was the follow-up and then high violet was the one that like established the National. This is the one that had the big New York Times magazine article about how difficult it was to record and how Lemon Wheel took like 70 plus takes to get right. I remember doing like an interview with the bass player for this album um, when I used to write for a website called Coke Machine Glow. When I went to the sadly defunct other music record store in New York City, that was like the indie store in the village. It is sadly closed. They had like the National had, like, a high-violet exhibit next to it. Like, the space next door, there was, like, an art exhibit. It had, like, a whole... In the record store itself, it had its own, like, display. This is, like, exciting. This is, like, exciting New York band making, like, New York-centric songs. And, like, you know, people from New York got really excited. that like, you know, these guys are our own. We got something we're proud of. I think this is also the record where they played Radio City Music Hall for the first time, and they started to establish themselves as like a big arena rock band. And they are one of like the new generations of arena rock bands. They play like indoor and outdoor sheds to thousands and thousands of people, many people in Europe as well. They make bank in Europe. But this album, I don't even know if it's my favorite national album. It's definitely up there, but it's more of like what it, uh, what it signifies which is to say they put a lot of effort into it, a lot of effort into production. It's almost overproduced. It's a little fussy. That's the problem. If there's one problem with it is that it sounds like fuss to an inch of its life because they knew it had to be good and they had a lot to prove. And ever since this record, they've kind of laid back a little bit more with Trouble Will Find Me and then um, Sleep Well Beast and then the most recent one, I'm Easy to Find. Sleep Well Beast is kind of like its cousin. Yeah, I know, it's the fussy. Yeah, you could say that. 
But this album, I mean, song-wise, it's got England. That's like the song where they basically kick the shit out of our, kick the shit out of Arcade Fire, beating them at their own game. Um, <laughs> it's so true. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's like, hey, Arcade Fire, we can do this better and not suck like you guys suck now. So here you go. <laughs> I mean, it's got terrible love. It's got sorrow. My goodness. It's got Vanderlaal crybaby geeks. Their big acoustic sing-along that closes almost every show they play. It's got runaway conversation 16, just song after song after song. But anyway, that's uh, just the way I feel about the national. So, like I said, my number three record was what I thought was going to be my number two record. My number two record, I didn't know where it was going to end up until I went back and did my full deep dive and realized at the end of the day, where my musical tastes and musical interests went this decade, so much of it begins with this record and so much, uh, so much of it runs through this record. So, two thousand nine, two thousand, yeah, yeah, it was fall two thousand nine. Uh, I was introduced to a lot of great bands that are formative for me. I mentioned earlier Woods, Yola Tango. Uh, of of note, those are probably the two biggest. Um, but around that time was when Pitchfork put out their top 200 albums of the 2000s. And I remember it was a really cool moment because, you know, I hadn't been as good at following music throughout the aughts, if you will, as I was here in the 2010s. I became much more strategic about it here in the 2010s. And so I remember using that as a huge opportunity to learn about a lot of bands that had, for whatever reason, passed me by. Streaming wasn't available. Um... I didn't nearly have, I didn't have any money, and so all my stuff came through downloads, and it really wasn't until 2009 when I lived in Korea that I downloaded a ton of stuff, and I found a lot of resources, and I had a lot of good people kind of guiding me to the right records to listen to. And so this record, well, this band came to me via that Pitchfork Top albums of the 2000s when they reviewed... Deer Hunter's Cryptograms. And I don't even remember where it came up, but I remember reading about the band and being like, shit. It's almost like they've combined electronic, weird, like, ambient, mind-fuckery noise music with a rock band. 
I remember downloading that record and being fucking blown away and listening to cryptograms over and over and over again throughout 2009 and early 2010. And I remember sitting at my brother-in-law's table in September of 2010, basically ten year, or, uh, nine years ago to where we are right now, and opening up my computer and pulling up pitchfork.com and seeing that they were reviewing an album called Halcyon Digest by, Pitch, by Deer Hunter. And they gave it like an, know, like an 8.7 or a 9.3 or something super high. Something to the point that they were trying to drive home that this is a big, important record that you should hear. And I downloaded it. The first sound on that record is the like kind of tape hiss and then the... of Earthquake and then the guitar comes in and Bradford Cox's weird ghostly vocals come in and I was hooked and the song Revival and the song Desire Lines like Dave was saying earlier the song Helicopters the song He Would Have Laughed which was a tribute to Jay Retard who had passed away right before the record came out an amazing guitarist who I think is from Nashville I think he was a Nashville-based guitarist. And I think that's correct. He was, yeah, Rachel was Nashville. Um, and I just listened to this record throughout the entire last half of 2010. Um, it ended up number four on my list. Number three was Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which ended up a little bit lower on my overall decade list. But this album just continued to rise. A big shout-out to friend of the pod, Stephen Hyden, who in 2013 wrote an article of his favorite songs uh, of the year at that point in time, one of which was, and this is for our indie jam friends, not our fish friends right here, uh, The Line, (laughs) which I have a soft spot for that song, I, I won't lie, and part of it is because he compared it to he compared the end of the line to Desire Lines. It was the first time I'd ever heard him compare Fish to an indie band. And I re-listened to the song with a totally new light. And it just kept following me. Deer Hunter came out with Monomania, Fading Frontier, Why Hasn't Everything Already Disappeared, and all those albums I loved, but nothing quite like Halcyon Digest. And when I went back and redid my list here this year, I just knew this is one of the most important, influential records I've ever heard. Uh, I can listen to it in one sitting over and over and over again. It was one of the first records I bought when I got a record player. And um, I would do anything for pretty much any of my favorite bands to ever make a record like Halcyon Digest. That sounds so true to what that band's goals were from day one, but also departs in such a unique way that keeps them fascinating, keeps you on your toes as your listener, as a listener, and uh, puts you in a position where you have to just really be challenged in a rewarding way. That's kind of, at the end of the day, that, that's what that record was for me. It was a challenging record in an incredibly rewarding way that continues to reap its benefits and puts me constantly in a position where I have to say to myself, it's always worth it to listen to a record that you don't know by a band that you don't know because that moment that you get that aha is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs>
And that was what this record was for me. Okay. Also, I'll say that the comparison of the line to the Zyre lines and Haydn does it makes sense in terms of like the uh, the motif repeated over and over and over. And it made sense at the time, but Desire Lines is a much better song than The Line. Doing good. Okay. We've gotten to my number one. My goodness. So. There's two types of people in this world. Those who like Robin, spelled R-O-B-Y-N, and those who don't. And those who don't are awful, awful, (laughs) sub-Trump-supporting people. I mean, it's one thing if you haven't heard her, and you're not familiar with her, and then listen to her, then then you should like her. I mean, if you're not familiar with Robin, then, you know, you... Like, get it passed. But if you actually listen to, like, four or five Robin songs and decide that you don't like this music, then there's something seriously fucking wrong with you. And I don't want to hang out with you ever. Because my favorite album, which came out in 2010, is Robin's Body Talk. Now, Robin is one of my favorite and my wife's favorite pop artists of the decade. And Body Talk was actually, it was kind of like a compilation, if you want to dock it at all, because it was a compilation of three EPs. I think it was like, there was the first EP, the second EP, and then it was all compiled with some other new songs on the Body Talk album, which came out in 2010. And this is just, you want to talk about bangers? You probably, if there's a Robin song you know, other than the song Show Me Love when she was much younger, in uh, the late 90s and kind of being marketed as like a teen pop star which wasn't really her thing as it turned out is the song Dancing on My Own maybe you know this song because it was 
feature at the end of an episode of Girls. Maybe you just know it because it's like one of the most buoyant, uplifting, karaoke, shout yourself to the heavens, like dance pop songs with the past 20 years. I don't know, but if you don't know it, you got to familiar yourself. You got to familiarize yourself with it. There's was recently Robin played Madison Square Garden, me and my wife went, and then it went viral after the fact was a whole bunch of people on the subway in New York after the show singing Dancing on My Own to the Heavens. It was pretty great. That's probably Robin's signature song. Maybe it's her best song. This album's got songs like Stars Forever, Indestructible, Time Machine, Femba. It's just song after song after song. Everything is delicious. Everything is hooky. Everything is immaculately produced, and you just wonder how like one individual is so capable of having so many incredible dance pop songs that make you feel so goddamn good in one place. It's a feat of nature. I mean, this was so good, it basically took her like eight years to follow up. She put out an album last year called Honey, which, while very good, isn't the wall-to-wall bangers like Body Talk is. That's something that she's not going to be able to replicate ever again. But... You know, she's a phenomenal live performer, and she's just what would appear to be an incredibly uplifting and positive human being who maintains a sense of humor in some ridiculous onstage outfits and choreography. And I just, uh, I love that album and love Robin more than I can say. And I'm really sad that uh, Fish's Curveball didn't happen because I know uh, Beyond the Pond fan and, um, our friend Kathleen Henkel was talking about having a huge Robin dance party at, uh, at her campsite if Curveball was to go forward. But hopefully we can do that at whatever the next uh, Fish Camp Out event is. I know that she loves Robin as well. And if you like, have any sense of good goodness in your body, then you'll like Robin. Because, uh, like I said at the top of this, either you like her or you don't. And if you don't, that's fucked up. So we're sitting here, day has turned to dusk, it's no longer humid, it's more just we're moving into the, the evening hours here, I can see a half moon right above me, uh, the crowd has ebbed and flowed here at Vinyl Tap, people are starting to have some fun, it's Saturday night, 
And we're going to wrap this up because we've got dinner reservations at the Butcher and the Bee here in about two hours from now. My number one record. So Dave and I went out to dinner last night and I looked at his list prior to recording and said, holy shit, Robin's Body Talk, your number one record. I was totally shocked. And he looked at my list and said, holy shit, this is your number one record. I'm not surprised. That's because it is the most obvious pick, but it's the right pick. My decade has been defined by this record. There's no record that I've ever heard. At least this decade, potentially in my entire life, that has said more to me at a specific time and then has carried over from there as the war on drugs lost in the dream. Please drink. Please drink for the decade. So, for those of you who listened to our top albums of 2014 episode, I did a huge overview of why this record is my favorite record of that year. Um, I'm not going to do go that deep here. I'm just going to get hit the kind of the big points. Uh, I was in Vietnam when this album came out. My brother had turned me on to the war on drugs via their album Slave Ambient, which also made my top albums list. And he said, in 2014, you have to hear this record right now. He sent it to me via email, and I threw it on my iPod, and I went out to take a run through the streets of Saigon, and I just remember the opening... And I remember just being like, what the fuck is going on? This is such a weird little production trick that Adam Grandshield's doing. And from there came a record that spoke more to where I was at that point in my life than anything else could. And for the next four months, all I listened to was The War on Drugs, Lost in the Dream, or Fish Shows, because I was trying to just read a ton while I was on buses throughout Southeast Asia. I went and saw the war on drugs. I noted this, one of my favorite concerts of the decade. And I had a kid about a year and a half later. And this was the first album I ever played for my kid. It was one of the first records I bought on vinyl. Saw the war on drugs a ton throughout the decade. And just constantly, whenever I was in need, whenever things were going well, whenever things were really difficult, I had this record to fall back on. And I remember, and I mentioned this specifically in our uh, our Top Albums of 2014 episode. And I'll mention it here again. Because it's important and it's relevant and it's very specific to this podcast. Uh, in episode one, we played Burning off of the Camden Chalk Test. And I, I had suggested Burning to Dave, and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a great song. And I was like, cool, he, he gets it. You know, he, he sees eye to eye with me on this. But I didn't totally know what he felt about the war on drugs. I didn't know if he was just being nice. I didn't know if he was just like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I didn't know if he felt similar to that album and that band as I did. I remember asking live on, on the podcast, didn't edit it out. Do you think this album's a masterpiece? 
and kind of thinking it was like one of those moments where the where if he said no, I was gonna be like, okay, we don't see eye to eye on music, but like we'll still try to push through. It was a risk. And he said, oh yeah, it's a fucking masterpiece. The way that Dave always does when when he believes it, you know, just like oh yeah, yeah there's yeah, of course. I remember being like, fuck yeah, we've got something going here. This isn't just gonna be like a seven time episode little hobby. We're actually gonna end up at Vinyl Tap where. Uh, you know, they haven't hosted us here, but they've welcomed us with open arms. Yeah, that's very true. All the love the Vinyl Tap in Nashville. All the love. None of this would have happened without this record. It, it was like another level for this record with me in such a huge way. And so, without belaboring the point, this is the best album I heard this decade. This would probably be the best album I heard last decade. It might be the best album I heard in the 90s. It's one of my favorite records I've ever heard in my entire life. And all I can hope for as we move into a new decade is that there's another record that speaks to me between my 35th and 45th years in the same way that the war on drugs lost in the dream day. Christ, it was an epic episode. <laughs> this is, uh, we did it. We did it. Maybe the longest episode we've done. Certainly the only time I think we've recorded an episode this long outdoors. But man, if you've uh, listened to this and been on board for this long, shout out to Vinyl Tap in East Nashville and all the denizens and owner for tolerating us as we sit outside here and drink beer and drink water out on um, the patio. Shout out to the old drunken guy who was 
eight PBRs deep when he commented on the podcast about two and a half hours ago, and I thought he was going to be more of a nuisance. Unfortunately, he wasn't. And we really hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoy making it. And damn, come back at some point, and we'll go beyond the pond. Osiris.